Welcome to the Tuesday Bible Study with yours truly and I'm so happy to have you here and let's get into the word. Yes, so if you remember last week we left off at verse 36 and we were talking about covetousness. (laughs) Covetousness and the most fascinating thing for me was actually I think a few days ago I was actually behind in my individual Bible reading. I slagged a little because I was reading other things. Then I was reading other books because at the moment I'm reading the book of Joshua. So I had to read something else from a different book. So I was a bit behind only to find out that if I had actually been on schedule and I had read the book of Joshua, the chapters I was supposed to read of the book of Joshua, I was going to find a perfect example of covetousness. And it was so fascinating for me. I found it in the book of Joshua. And I think it's around chapter 7, 8. I don't remember the exact chapter. I'll check for you guys. We is talking about a guy called Akan, where we find the children of Israel. Now they've crossed and they're now going to, they've got into the promised land. Apparently they wanted to take a particular land and a particular area. And God gave them an instruction. He said, for you guys to be able to take this particular area to be able to take this particular land for you to be able to um, overcome it you have to follow this specific instruction no it was jericho actually it was like you have to be able to you have to follow this specific instruction that i'm giving you that all the articles that you'll find gold silver i forgot the other things i think material and all that so all the things all the articles that you find be sure that you save them and put them in my temple there for me. Right. So the children of Israel now, Joshua sends people to go and spy this land that they wanted to get into. And it's actually not Jericho. I forgot the name of the land. And then the spies, they go and they realize, ah, it's, just a, it's a small, small group of people. You know, it's a very small group of people and they, there isn't much to it. So the people that went, the spies, they were like, ah, you know, just send a very small number of people. Send a couple of thousand. I think it's said two, three thousand. And we'll be able to take the place. So Joshua did exactly that. He sent a couple of thousand of people to the to take that particular land, right? So these people go and they're actually chased out of the land and they're beaten. And then now Joshua comes back to God and he's asking and he's saying, why is it that why is it that we, we were beaten by such a small land? What about your name? What about your reputation? And he's already on the floor and God literally responds to Joshua and he's like, get up, get up. Why are you so like literally on the floor and you're perplexed? You did not do what I told you to do. And then God told him that someone in your tribe actually took some of the articles that I said there for me. Right. So now they do a whole thing where they're searching the whole tribes, like all the tribes. Everyone has to come individual, family by family, tribe by tribe. Whatever. And it's in that seeking out that they find this guy called Akan. And his response when he's asked, I confess what you've done. This guy says, I saw actually the gold and the silver in a robe, I think. And then he said, I coveted after them. I was like, that's a perfect example. So that's a beautiful example. I think it's uh, the book of Joshua chapter 7 or 8. I'm not quite sure. But that's a beautiful example of covetousness. Well, eventually he was stoned to death. And yeah, that's what happened. So that's an interesting example of covetousness. So I just thought we'd throw that in there. Since last week we only gave one example. The other example was David, but we didn't really get into that much. We did the first one, which was Gehazi. 
and now the second one is Akan. And now we have two examples of covetousness. And we can move forward. So now we're continuing Psalms 119, verse 37. And it reads, Turn my eyes from worthless things and preserve my life according to your word. Again, we already spoke that this particular section of Psalms 119, all the verses are more or less causative. It's like the psalmist is asking God to sort of reinforce and to help him. Cause me to. Help me with. Do this, do that. They're very causative, right? And this one is, is not an exception. He's saying, turn my eyes. asking God, he's like, God, turn my eyes from worthless things and preserve my life according to your word. The psalmist is asking God to turn his eyes from worthless things. Because he knows. He knows what he knows and what everyone of us knows. That the eye... The eyes have a natural inclination towards worthless things. And unfortunately, we, if you know good and well that we live in a generation that is rooted with worthless things. Things that sometimes the masses can put value on. But when you step back and you sort of like try to more or less analyze it as an individual, you realize that a lot of those things, they're very worthless and they're not of use to you. So that's what the psalmist is saying. He's saying, turn my eyes from worthless things. Right, and we live in a generation where worthless things are everywhere. Before you know it, you've been on TikTok for half an hour, and if someone asks you, "What did you gain from that?" you don't really have a solid answer, right? So he prayed that God would enable and empower him to turn his eyes and his attention away from these worthless things. And it's unfortunate that many people's lives have been destroyed because they were not able to take that to do that particular prayer. They were not able to pray for God to help them to turn their eyes from worthless things. Maybe there were people that thought they could manage. Because someone can ask the question, does the psalmist not have eyes? He could have easily turned away from the worthless things by himself. But it's important to know that in as much as you have, as an individual, you have ability within, you, within yourself, at the end of the day, a sense of ability that is reinforced by God will always be of value more than one that isn't you see so now the psalmist that's why the psalmist is asking saying turn my eyes away from worthless things and this is a prayer this is, this is definitely a prayer point for us for everyone living in this generation that lord turn my eyes away from worthless things away from things that can take my time my time for you away from things that can sort of affect the way that i look at you and affect the love i have for you right and it's important for us, I think when I was doing the when I was going through this verse prior, I sort of got to a point where I wanted to understand like it's important for us to describe or sort of like to define what are the things that we should discuss that we should describe as worthless. What are worthless things? Like if we were to sit down, me and you, whoever's watching, right? And we're just say, oh, what are the things that we should describe as worthless things? What are worthless things? What is something that is worthless? Like, well, fine, you want to, you're talking to someone, maybe someone is like, you know, I don't understand. Like, where do we draw the line? But you know what's worthless? Because sometimes it's something that brings me joy. It's just something that's fun. It's not necessarily something that edifies, but it's just something that's fun that I do. So does that mean it's worthless? I don't know. So I just came up with a few things that may help us. In case there's someone who may be asking, like, what are some of the things that we should consider as worthless things? It may seem like a dumb question, and a simple question, right? 
But life sometimes it's more or less complex and, and we need God's help at every turn to be able to turn our eyes from the so-called worthless things, right? Or remove certain appetites. Sometimes I believe turning your eyes from a worthless thing could be removing your, a certain appetite in you for worthless things. Okay, so what are some of the worthless things? How do we determine, like, what's the scale that we use to determine that something is worthless? That th this thing that I'm doing is worthless. So I have a few points, and then I, I don't know if you guys have any points you can add on or comment. I'll read afterwards, right? One, anything that doesn't grow you as an individual or anything that isn't aligned with the who or what God has in store for you or what God has called you to be. So that's the first distinction I want us to get, that... Something that does not grow you as an individual and something that is not aligned, Pastor Annie is joined, something that is not aligned to what God is in store for you is something that we can regard as worthless. Let's go to the second one. Things that do not, that do or bring no good, right? Things that don't help anyone. Things that don't add faith, hope, or love. Next one, things that distract us from the important things. Next one, things that do not do any good and things that don't help someone else. Things that build our faith, things that don't build our faith, hope, and love. So basically we're talking about Psalms 19 verse 37 where the psalmist is saying, turn my eyes from worthless things. And we're trying to sort of more or less de de define or describe worthless things. What are the things, how do we look at something and we put it on a scale. How do we evaluate that this thing is worthless to me in this particular? And it's something that God should take my eyes away from. What is that thing? So we're trying to understand more or less things that don't add value to you as an individual. Things that don't necessarily align with who God has called you to be. Right? Things that don't grow you as an individual. And sometimes things that distract you from important things. They are all things that we can use these are all sentences that we can use to describe something that is worthless. Because the psalmist is asking and he's praying for God. Help me to take my eyes away from worthless things. And I think that's beautiful. Right. So now we're going. Another thing I want us again to take from verse, verse 37 is actually very interesting. Like on the outside, it looks very. But when you actually look at it, it's very interesting. Because for example, it, it when he's saying, turn my eyes away from worthless things. He's also talking about the power of the eye gate. You know, we have five gates right the eye gate the ear gate the nose gate the mouth gate these are the things through which like things and signs and things we things inputs are put into our bodies right the things you see you see it is now in your mind you hear it is now within you right so these are all sort of gates but now we're looking at the importance of the eye gate because it's, it's a prayer that you can look at and be like why can't you just close your eyes why can't you just look away i like tay um, but it's important for us important to, to understand the importance of the eye gate. This prayer is in line with a lot of verses that I found. I was like, oh, let me let me look at some verses that have a lot to do with um, sight. Because why is the psalmist particularly asking God to remove his eyes from worthless things? What has he understood about sight and the things that you can see that maybe we haven't grasped yet as individuals? What are the things that he has understood about sight? Listen, if God doesn't turn your eyes away from certain appetites and from seeing certain things, they will destroy you. So what are some of those things that the psalmist has seen? Right. So I found a few very interesting verses. The first one is Matthew 6.22. 
which talks about how the eye is a lamp to the body. And I was actually trying to understand, like, sometimes the best way to understand things is, is to take it in the most literal sense. If the Bible says the eye is a lamp to the body, take the key word. The key word is lamp. What is the use of a lamp? A lamp brings light. A lamp illuminates. You can be sitting in the dark, but the minute someone comes with a lamp, you can now see everything. So it's saying that's essentially the, the, the role that the eye plays in the body. Your eye is a lamp to your body and to everything around you and inside you. And it's important that things that you see, the things that enter through your eye gate, they will affect your body because the Bible is actually saying the eye is a lamp to the body. Let's continue the verse. If your eyes are healthy, then your body, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness, right? If then the light within you is darkness, then how great is the darkness within you? That's an interesting verse, isn't it? So it's important for at each and every time to, at each and every point in time to be able to guard your eye gate. Your eyes are a lamp to your body. Someone says the eye is a window to the soul. I'm not sure if that's a verse. But both codes essentially, they're sort of like telling us the importance of the eyes. How your eye is a lamp to the body. How the things you see actually affect. I've even noticed even like with regard to dreams. Sometimes when you watch a movie or watch something that sort of disturbs you or sort of like scares you. It seeps into your dreams. Now at night you're sleeping and you can't even tell things apart, right? Because it got in through the eye gate. You see, sometimes you're even scared in your dreams, right? Because the fear was instilled through your eyes. The eye is a lamp to the soul, right? So what do we see actually does matter. So we have to always be mindful of that. Okay, so the next verse is Matthew 5, 29, which reads, if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out. I love this verse. I've always been fascinated with it. And throw it away. It is better It is better than for you to lose your whole body when it is thrown into hell. I love how the, the psalmist sort of took a different approach. He didn't want to go the gouge my eye approach, but he was like, you know what? At the end of the day, I understand the power of the, of the eye gate. But instead of gouging my eye out, I'm going to pray for God to sort of help me to turn my eyes away, to just look the other way. And I find myself in a situation where... Either I have to look at whether there's things or I have to do other things. I want to be able to look away. I want God to enable me to look away from the worthless things, right? So the psalmist understood the power of the eye gate. Do we as individuals understand that same power, right? That's why he had to pray for reinforcement and help from God to turn his eyes from worthless things. One can ask, does the psalmist not have eyelids that he can just close? Why does he need God's help? But we've already established that godly reinforcement will always be better than trying to do something by yourself, right? And I love how he didn't take the gouge my eyes out approach, right? Like the advice being given by Jesus in Matthew 5, 29. And I was actually thinking, I was like, okay, so th there's two situations here, right? In one verse, Jesus is actually telling us that if your eye causes you to sin, it's better for you to gouge it out, right? And then this, we see the psalmist, now the psalmist is saying something different. He's saying, you know what, at the end of the day, God, help me to turn my eyes away from worthless things. And I was actually looking at a contrast of these two things. And I realized that it's relative. It's relative. Like the example that Jesus was giving. Like if your eyes or the things that you're seeing, be it on Instagram, Twitter, whatever, social media, Facebook, they are sort of more or less causing you to sin in a way. 
it's better for you to remove your eye. And remove your eye, it means you're removing your eye from that particular thing. Whether it means you delete that particular app, whether it means you withdraw from certain things, that is what we would call gouging the eye out because you're removing something that maybe you're so attached to. Maybe that's why it's being described as if you, are, you have to gouge it out. It's something that you're attached to. It's something that you enjoy being around. It's something that you enjoy using, but ultimately it causes you to sin. So you weigh the cost and you realize, you know, at the end of the day, it's far much better for me to lose this thing than to lose my whole body by virtue of sin, right? And I think another, the the situation that the psalmist was describing in Psalms 119 verse 37, where he's talking about remove my eyes from other things. It's relative. In one situation, you need your eyes to be gouged out. Like from the perspective that you need to literally remove yourself from certain situations that cause you to sin, right? And from the perspective of the psalmist, turn my eyes away. I feel like turn my eyes away from worthless things applies to things that are not relative, that are relatively harmless, but they're worthless. You see, things that are not as strong as sin. Something, If something is literally causing you to sin, then more or less you have to remove it. That's literally what Jesus is saying. But then the psalmist is saying from worthless things, things that are of lesser gravity, right? Those are the things that you as an individual, you have to pray for God to help you to remove your eyes or to remove sort of like an affinity for certain things. I feel like removing your eyes, God removing your eyesight from certain things or removing your sight from certain things or removing your gaze from certain things. It can even talk about removal of an affinity, maybe something that you enjoy to watch. But you know, it's not edifying and it, it it's not building you up in any way. You know that it is of no use or it's worthless according to that definition that we gave, right? In such instances, I feel like it's, it's, it's important to pray and to ask God to remove your eyes from certain things. Turn away my sight from worthless things. Godly, re godly reinforcement is important, guys. So we're not taking, we're not, we can now go to the second part of this verse. I think also with regard to the eye gate, it's important to understand sometimes I feel like, like we're seeing these two situations, like the one the psalmist that just gave us, the one where he's asking God to turn his eyes away from worthless things. And we're seeing the example of Jesus in Matthew 5. I always say don't negate the role that you have to play. If you're in a situation and you can see that this thing and that thing and that thing, they are more or less causing me to sin there's a role that you have to play. And as much as God can help you, God can help us at each and every point, but don't negate the role that you have to play as an individual. There's a role that you have to play. If you're in a situation where you, you have the capacity and you are able to turn your own eyes away, you are able to withdraw yourself or to remove yourself from certain situations that are not beneficial to your work with God, that are not beneficial to your faith, that are not beneficial to how you relate with God that are not beneficial to who God has called you to be. If you are in that space or that frame where you are able to remove yourself, then by all means, it's important to remove yourself. Don't negate the role that you have to play. God will always help us. Right. Amen. So now let's go to the second part. The psalmist is saying, we've already spoken about that. Turn my eyes away from where this things part. The second part of that verse is, and preserve my life according to your word. I feel like this particular section of Psalms 19, the psalmist keeps echoing things he said before. Like it's something that he said in a previous verse. Because if you remember, there's a verse prior that he spoke about, preserve me according to your word. Now he's coming back and he's saying, preserve my life according to your word. 
And it's an important prayer for revival. He's asking for personal revival, but according to the word of God, right? Now let's go to verse 38, verse 38, verse 38. Psalms 119, verse 38. Fulfill your promise to your servant so that you may be feared. Fulfill your promise to your servant so that you may be feared. I love how this particular verse shines a light on the promises of God. He's asking and he's praying for God to fulfill his promises to him. And what I took from this primarily is God has laid out so many promises in his word. I was reading earlier today and it was... I was actually searching on the internet, like how many promises has God given us, like in, in general, in totality? And they're about 7.5, right? And the psalmist is asking, fulfill your promises to your servant, right? And it's, a, it's an important prayer to pray. But you know what's a prayer that's more detailed or more point focused? It's a prayer that comes when you pray knowing the promises of God. What are the promises of God? That's the research for this week. You have to ask yourself. That's the question you have to ask yourself this week. It's important to be able to pray and say, God, fulfill your promises to me. But it's even more better if you if you are able to pinpoint these promises. I love someone say, or someone who said, don't be afraid to God to hold God accountable at his word. Hold God at his word. This particular promise in this particular verse is what you said. And I am praying for a fulfillment of that because you are specific, because you read the word, right? And you cannot say fulfill your promises when you don't know any of the promises. You have to know the promises of God. What are the promises of God towards you as an individual? What are the promises that God has given towards your family, towards families in general? Now, that there comes the part that you have to play. Like I was saying, don't negate your role. This is the part where your role comes in again. Your role comes in in the sense that you actually have to read the word to be able to find the promises of God. You have to find the promises of God. You have to know what are the promises that God has given me, right? And you find those promises and now you apply them and you pray according to them. You know, you pray and you apply them in prayer, those exact promises of God. You said that I will be wealthy. And you quote the verse. This is the promise that you made in your word. So someone said God is moved by his word. Someone said God is a slave to his word. So as long as he has said it, you have to be able to bring it back to him. Always bring God's, God's word back to him and pray and ask God, what does this mean? Pray and ask God, this is what you said in your word. This is what is going on in my life. Why is there a disparity? Is there anything that I'm doing wrong, right? Oh, I actually wrote this down. There are a grand total of 8,810 promises in the Bible. 7,487 of them being promises made by God to mankind. God has laid so many promises for us in his word, how many do you know? You can't claim what you don't know. I can give an example. If someone leaves you an inheritance, right? Someone leaves you an inheritance, maybe a long lost relative. They leave you an inheritance, right? But you don't know. Can you claim that inheritance when you don't know it? You can't. You see? Somewhere, somewhere, there has to be an element of knowing. You have to know. So this is my daily encouragement for you guys that get into the word. Find out what does the word say about wealth? What does the word say about health? What are God's promises? God, I, I believe there's a promise that God gave regarding every aspect of our lives. But then you have to find it, right? You have to find that particular promise and you have to appropriate it to yourself and you have to pray using it and you have to go back to God and say, God, 
this and this and this is what you said in your word. Fulfill it in my life. Like the psalmist is saying, fulfill your promise to your servant. Now you as an individual, now you're paying, you're saying, fulfill this particular promise to me as your servant, right? And I love how the book of Hosea 4, 6 talks about how people, but let's just read it. Hosea 4, verse 6, this is God speaking. He says, my people perish or are destroyed because of lack of knowledge and they have rejected knowledge. I love how the verse is very particular. It doesn't say my people are, are destroyed because of demons. It doesn't say my people are destroyed because of curses. My people, no, it just says my, my people are destroyed. My people are perishing because they lack knowledge. Knowledge of what? Knowledge of what God has said. Knowledge of what? Knowledge of the promises of God. Knowledge of what? Knowledge of your rights as a believer, as a born-again believer, as a child of God. Because you lack that knowledge, you are subject to destruction. Because you lack that knowledge, you are subject to perishing. How then do you get that knowledge? You get into the Bible. You watch teachings. You listen to teachings at church. And you get a deeper understanding. And it helps you to walk this Christian walk better. And I love something that I was. I remember said this. Someone said the devil will always thrive off your off of your ignorance. What's an area you're ignorant about? Is it wealth? Is it tithing? Is it finances? Is it is it health? Said the area that you're ignorant about. That's the that's the area that the devil will pounce on. That's the area that the devil will literally exercise himself in that particular area of your life. Why? Because you you're ignorant about it. You don't know what the word says. You don't know what God says. So if you're sick, you say, hey. Maybe it's God's will. The whole time it's the devil attacking your health. But because you don't know what God's purpose regarding your health is or what God's mind regarding your wealth or your success or even particularly your health, because you don't know the mind of God, you are unable to get into the presence of God and say, God, but you said this in your word. Why is this not happening? You are unable now to claim the word of God because you don't understand the word of God in general because you don't read his word, right? So let this be an encouragement. Read the word of God. Right, so we can be able to understand these promises. So we can be able to to know that what rights do I have as a newborn believer, as a born again believer? Like, what rights do I have? How do I differ from the person who's in the world? What are the differences? And how do I apply the advantages and the benefits that are associated with this life? How do I apply them to my day to day life in a way that is beneficial to me? In a way that will bring me progress? In a way that will advance me as an individual? You have to know these things. And so many times we love to use um, maybe watching teachings and all of that and maybe attending church services as a substitute for reading the Bible. There's no substitute for reading the Bible. <laughs> you have to read the Bible for yourself. There's no substitute for that. You have to read the word for yourself and seek. Maybe when you're like watching sermons or something else, it can be something to, to sort of help you to expand your understanding. But there will never be a substitute for reading the word of God. You have to read it for yourself. You have to see what it says. You have to understand what it says for you to be able to walk in it. You cannot live your Christian life on hearsay. What did this person say? Because my pastor said, I don't even know the verse, but my pastor said, I'm, I love that church that Paul was talking to in one of his letters. And he was saying that they were the kind of church that after he preached, they went to read the Bible themselves to be able to verify, is this true? And may God raise people like that in our generation, right? People that have a love for the word of God, right? Let me read something that I wrote here. The major reason we are perishing is because we have no knowledge of what the word of God says about us, about our future, about our destinies, about anything. We're lazy to read and understand it. 
Find the promises of God in his word. Speak them, right? Pray them. Align your life according to them. And align yourself with the necessary conditions for these promises. I saw something very interesting when I was um, reading the book of Kings. That a lot of the times that God gave a promise in the, around the book of Kings, more or less throughout the Bible, a lot of the times there was a condition attached to it. And more often than not, we love to claim verses without understanding the ecosystem of the verse. Like, okay, there's a verse that reads, there's no evil enchantment against you, blah, 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 right? And you see that verse and you speak it over yourself. But very rarely do we pause to be like, wait, when this verse was said, what exactly was going on? For, 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 for it to be said that there was no evil enchantment that was going to succeed against these people. What had been done prior? And you realize that at that point in time, the children of Israel were in, line, were in alignment with God. That's why there was literally no evil enchantment that was able to come against them and prosper because they were in alignment with God. But then sometimes what we want to do is we want to, to claim the verse and the promise, but without aligning our lives with the condition that is attached to the verse. For example, the, the verse about being, if you are willing and obedient, you eat the good of the land. We want to eat the good of the land, but we don't want to be willing and obedient. So that's important as well when you're looking at the promises of God. Find the conditions attached. Some promises have conditions. What do I have to do as an individual to be a partaker of this promise? Pastor Andy said, the barrier church explored the word to see whether it was so. Yes, that's the church I was asking about. Thank you. Okay, so thank you so much, everyone, for joining today. I'll see you next time, same time, same place. Thank you to everyone who watched the broadcast after. Next week, we are back to our usual time. Let me just say a prayer and we can close. Father, thank you for being with us throughout the session. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for guiding us throughout this whole session. Thank you for your leadership. Thank you for revealing your word to us. We pray that even as we go out throughout the rest of this week, give us a hunger to read your word and to understand and to study and to seek understanding with regard to your promises so that they may edify us, so that they may build us, that they can make us